Tom continues his teaching through the book of First Corinthians, and we'll be reading all of chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, but that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, but yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Lord Jesus, as we enter that important passage that discusses knowledge and love and liberty, help us be guided by the priority of love. In Jesus' name. Thank you, brother. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be here. I noticed a little rain earlier, but it hasn't gotten bad yet. The most, uh, the most effective weapon against ignorance is, of course, knowledge. But in the arrogant habit of our old nature, we all too often end up wielding that weapon, that very powerful weapon, against something else, and that's love. The longer I live and the more that I see the truths of God's Word played out in this world, the more convinced I am that Satan's favorite strategy to cripple the church of Jesus Christ is, is not to oppose the church from without, it is to divide the church from within. I'm also convinced that the weapon that Satan uses most effectively to accomplish that tearing apart of Christ's church from within is not falsehood, it's not ignorance, it's knowledge. It's legitimate, accurate knowledge wielded by Christians in a way that tears down rather than builds up and that violates love for God and love for one another. I asked Joe to read all of chapter 8 this morning so we would see the entire flow of the chapter. And we're going to touch on several 
verses that were just read, but the focus of our attention this morning will be on the first three verses of chapter 8. We'll dig, dig, dig deeper into, chapters, into uh, verses 4 through 13 when we come back to this study of 1 Corinthians in about a month. Between now and then, we have a congregational meeting next Sunday in lieu of teaching. For, Phil Borat will then be teaching us on uh, March 28th, and I'll have a special message for Resurrection Sunday on April 4th, and then we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, Paul introduces yet another problem that had reared its head within the community of believers at the, in the church at Corinth. But just as with the problems that he has already addressed, problems, problems like man-centered factions and arrogance and sexual immorality and Christians taking each other to court in lawsuits, the problem that he raises here in chapter 8 was certainly not limited <laughs> to this one group of Christians. Paul begins the chapter by saying, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that. And then in verse 4, he picks up on that opening statement. It sounds very similar. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that. And then he tells us, what we know. And then from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, he drills down on that specific practice of eating foods sacrificed to idols in order to expose how the Corinthian believers were, were badly mishandling it. Between the beginning of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 4, Paul very deliberately shifts away from practice to principle. And that's where we're going to hang out this morning, is on principle. Big picture principles that he sets before us in verses 1 through 3 will be our, our focus today. But before we go there, we need to understand the flow of the chapter a little better. I believe, as, as many other commentators do, that, bo that both of the we know that statements in this chapter in verse 1 and verse 4, uh, in those statements, Paul is restating what he received from the Corinthian church in the letter that we've mentioned several times. They had written a letter to him asking questions, making assertions, and they were waiting for Paul's response. <clears throat> uh, Paul, I believe, restates their assertions at several points in the book, as we've, and we've already seen some of those. And he does so then in order to challenge them. Not necessarily to contradict them, but to, but to challenge them, to, make the, to, to get the Corinthians to think differently than they've been thinking and act differently than they've been acting. Paul is reminding them of their own assertions here about their knowledge regarding the matter of meat sacrificed to idols so that he can challenge those assertions in a critically important way. I'm going to give you a little more backstory before we continue. As we discussed at the very beginning of this series, the city of Corinth was situated geographically in an amazingly strategic position when it came to trade. It was on a little tiny isthmus of land that separated two seas, and it became the perfect passing point over land for, for things being shipped in the Roman Empire from from Asia Minor over to Europe 
via Italy. It was right in the middle. Um, because of its location, Rome had poured lots of money and lots of resources and lots of people into the city, specifically under Julius Caesar. Uh, it had become a very, very affluent city, much like Dallas, Texas. And it was like Dallas in another way. It was a cosmopolitan city, meaning that, that the, the population in Corinth consisted of people from all kinds of ethnic and socioeconomic and religious backgrounds, all pooled into this one place. But one of the things that set this city apart considerably from modern day Dallas is that the public life of the city revolved overwhelmingly around the religious institutions of the, of the culture. And those religions were overwhelmingly pagan. Greece had many gods. Any of you who, who've uh, studied ancient Greece and even in junior high and high school know about Zeus and Apollo and Hares and Hercules and all these guys, right? The, 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 the Mount Olympus gang. Well, the Romans renamed the gods of mythical Mount Olympus, but they continued to worship them. The Greeks, of course, kept the old names. So in Athens and Corinth, you're still going by the old names. Poseidon, the god of the seas, had special significance to the city of Corinth because its fortunes depended so heavily on sea trade and on the generous profligate spending of sailors to indulge their desires in Corinth while they were fur furloughed there until their next voyage. Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love, whom the Romans knew as Venus, was popular for many of the same reasons. Her temple stood at the peak of a hill known as the Acrocorinth or Upper Corinth that overlooked the entire city. The thousand or so cult prostitutes that were connected with the temple of Aphrodite continually rendered their services to sailors and anyone else willing to pay the temple fee, both at the temple and down in the city. There were many other gods and temples in Corinth. There were Egyptian gods and regional gods. And as, as is typical in a culture in which there are so many different gods, there was great openness and tolerance Nobody cared very much which god or gods got your personal attention. All of this, of course, put the Christians in that city in a very uncomfortable place. The great social events that brought the people in Corinth together were not state fairs or, uh, or art festivals like they are here. They were pagan, sacrificial feasts. They were great big parties thrown to appease the gods. There was an endless flow of these festivals for one or more gods at various times throughout the year within the city. And the standard operating procedure when it came to food for those feasts was that all the animals that were to be consumed as food were first 
to be offered up as sacrifices to whichever god or gods were connected with the temple that, that was hosting that piece of the festival or that particular festival. And by the way, if you were a family and you wanted to throw a big reception for a wedding, you probably used one of the temples as the venue because that's where you could gather in large numbers. And the food that was presented, that was provided by the temples was offered up to pagan gods. The priests at the temples, would, since those, were, those festivals were kind of like church potlucks, there was always a lot more food prepared than was consumed, and, and a lot more animals sacrificed than were even cooked. So what the priests did is they, they had the first dibs to get whatever meat was left over that was needed for their families, and then they took the excess and they sold it to the meat markets. They sold it to the butchers throughout the city of Corinth. And so when you went and you bought meat, you had no idea whether it had been offered up to an idol or not, unless you bought it from a Jewish butcher, which very few people except Jews did. Here's where it got really tricky for the Christians. You had no way, if you went to the market and bought meat, you had no way of knowing whether it had been offered up whether it had been presented as a sacrifice to a false god. The factor, uh, and a factor in the, the, that the letter that Paul had received from the church at Corinth was almost certainly written by the elders of that church. It was almost certainly written by the elders and leaders, the respected Christians in the church of Corinth. The assertion of those leaders among the Corinthian saints was in effect that any Christian who worried about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols was ignorant of the freedoms possessed by Christians and that person needed to be corrected. These leaders rightly understood that idol worship, I-D-O-L, was idol worship, I-D-L-E. Because in reality, there's only one God, right? Paul's restatement of their understanding is not a contradiction of it. It is an acknowledgement of it. They were correct. They were correct in saying that there is one true God and Father of all and one Lord Jesus Christ who created all things and for whom we all exist. That's marvelous Christian doctrine, right? They were correct in saying that pagan gods were no gods at all. They didn't even exist, except in the imagination of their worshipers. Their knowledge about God was correct as far as it went, but it was very badly incomplete. There were some things that they clearly did not know that are absolutely necessary in order to equip God's people to handle knowledge rightly. Paul presents those, those principles that govern the way we handle knowledge in three, state, three pieces in verses one through three. The first is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The second is that accurate knowledge 
is not sufficient knowledge. And the third is that knowledge made perfect or complete is to love God and to be known by God. We'll take those one at a time. First, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul starts in verse 1 by restating what the Corinthians asserted about their own knowledge. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. What knowledge? We'll jump down to verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Again, marvelous theology here. These guys knew the word. Their final assertion is in verse 8. They said, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. The leaders in the church at Corinth are proudly saying that they've got this whole meat sacrifice to idols thing all figured out. They wrote to Paul, no doubt, so that they could get a pat on the back for their excellent theological insight. But they got no pat on the back from Paul. Instead, they got a rebuke. Paul's answer, in effect, says, okay, so you know you have knowledge in this matter, huh? You know that you have this all figured out and that you're handling it rightly, huh? You're wrong. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We already talked about this word that's used here, to be puffed up, to be arrogant, when we were in chapter 4. Paul uses the word a total of eight times in his letters. Seven of those eight times, it's presented as an accusation against the Corinthians. So he tells this one church seven times, you people are arrogant. Perhaps that should get their attention. <laughs> this particular community of Christians was not known for its godly humility. And beloved, that's a problem. That's a very, very big deal to God. Oh, they had knowledge running out their ears. But they were using that knowledge as a bludgeon rather than a blessing. The leaders in that church were lording over rather than leading with love. Now, it may be easy for us to kind of dismiss the principle of this passage because we can't relate to the practical situation that Paul is dealing with here. I bought a lot of meat in my day, and I've never run across a label that said, you know, Poseidon Prime or, or Aphrodite's Finest. But, but you and I must not miss the timeless principle that Paul is setting before us here. Imagine... And, and in, order to, in order to get it, sometimes, you know what we have to do? We have to try to transport ourselves back 
culturally and, and kind of try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that received what was written. Imagine if you were a new believer within the Christian community in Corinth, especially if you were a believer whom God had saved out of a deeply entrenched family tradition of worshiping one or more of the pagan gods. Not just superficially, but devoutly. What if you'd grown up firmly believing that your health, your well-being, even your ability to bear children all depended on appeasing the gods that were worshipped in one of those pagan temples in the city? What if you had believed all your life that pleasing those gods was your only defense against the terrible demonic forces that were all around you? So for years, you had consumed meat sacrificed to idols as if your life and your livelihood absolutely depended on winning the good favor of the gods to whom that meat was, was offered up. But now, God had brought you out of all that terrible darkness into the marvelous light of His grace, into union with Jesus Christ together with all His redeemed, whether Jew or Gentile, can you understand why it might be onerous to you to eat anything that even might have been offered up to one of those idols? What if you went to dinner at the home of one of the elders of your church? When the meal was served, you politely asked about the origin of the meat for all the reasons already stated because of your personal history. And what if the elder of that church told you he wasn't sure which butcher it came from or where it came from before it got to the butcher, but that that was nothing for a Christian to be concerned about. What if he told you that even the fact that you asked such a question proved you to be a legalist? That there was no reason at all for you not to happily eat that meat because we all know that no God exists except the one true God. Can you see how it might tear at your conscience before God if you followed that elder's lead and ate that meat? In that scenario, beloved, the elder's arrogant confidence that his knowledge about God tells him everything that he needs to know and that everybody else needs to know causes him to violate godly love toward a brother in Christ. What Paul is saying here in no uncertain terms is that even if a believer's accurate knowledge of God enables him to eat that meat with a crystal clear conscience before God, if that same believer creates confusion or guilt in another believer's heart that causes that, that believer to violate his conscience, his conscience before God, the first believer is turning his knowledge into sin. Beloved, you can be propositionally right at the same time that you are relationally dead wrong. Not just wrong, but according to verse 11, sinning against Christ. And it's the relational part that matters most to God. I had a, a friend a long time ago, his name was Dan. He was, he was a national director for Campus Crusade in Mexico for a while. He had never taken a drink of alcohol in his life. He was raised a multi-generational Baptist. And he got down there and they all drank 
wine with meals. You know what he did? He drank wine with meals. Paul says, I have become all things to all people in order that by all means I might win them more. This works both directions. Works both directions, whatever the issue is. It's about love. Now we're, we're going to look further at what Paul says about weak versus strong conscience regarding any matter of practice and how that distinction manifests itself in our own cultural context when we come back to this passage in a few weeks. This is, there's a lot, of, a lot to consider in this, in this one 13-verse chapter. But for now, I want to make sure we see the big picture. The first facet of that big picture is that knowledge that is not under the controlling influence of godly love puffs up. But genuine godly love builds up. The second facet of that picture is in verse 2, and that is that accurate knowledge is not the same thing as sufficient knowledge. There's an old saying that has persisted through many generations of THM students at Dallas Seminary. It's a four-year program, 128 hours. When you come to DTS, you're sure you already know everything you need to know about the Bible. You just need the credentials to prove it. By the end of your second year, you begin to realize there are some things you don't know all that well. By the end of your third year, you become painfully aware that there are a whole lot of things that you don't know all that well. And by the time you graduate, you finally figure out that what you do know pales in comparison with what you don't know. Some finished seminary having gone through the opposite course of, of conclusions about their knowledge. They walk out thinking they know everything, and that's very dangerous. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul presents a masterful three-chapter treatise on the absolute sovereignty of God over the souls and destinies of all men. And then Paul, who is this marvelously articulate thinker and writer, concludes that worldview-changing proposition with these words in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. And these words end with a simple, humble prayer. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Or who became his counselor? Or, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the right attitude about knowledge. Verse 2 of this morning's passage should bring every one of us to our knees in that kind of humility before God. Paul says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. <laughs> My brother stood up this morning and said, we think we know what we need, but God knows what we need. That's along the same lines. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. The word anything there is the Greek neuter. It, it is 
Not only is it indefinite about its objects, it's impersonal. It's impersonal. And impersonal knowledge, beloved, is never sufficient knowledge. Because of my work history, I know a whole lot of things about computers and networks. But I know Greg Watson personally. Those two realms of knowledge overlap. I know quite a few things about Greg Watson as well. But one of those realms of knowledge goes very much further than the other. Paul says that that first kind of knowledge, no matter how extensive it is, no matter how detailed and broad and comprehensive it is, even when it is knowledge about God, is really nothing to get very excited about. Because that kind of knowledge is insufficient to equip you to love well and therefore to live well. In Psalm 95, King David described the failure of the Israelites during the 40 years of their wilderness wanderings in the desert of Sinai after they had been unwilling to enter the land of promise because of the giants who were in the land. They had not trusted God. In that now 3,000-year-old psalm, David presents the words of God himself. He writes, When your fathers tested me, this is God speaking, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. They had seen my work, but they did not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. The Israelites had firsthand knowledge about God, a lot of it. They had seen his work with their own eyes as he dispensed ten mighty plagues against Egypt to liberate Israel from their harsh bondage. They saw with their own eyes that he parted the sea and led them through it on dry ground and then drowned the entire Egyptian army in that same body of water. It was that same generation of Israelites that had first received God's law through Moses. The law that showed them the character and the ways of God as his ways were to play out in their real life relationship with him and with each other. But they didn't trust God. They didn't know the character of their God. They grossly misjudged the ways of their God. In spite of their distrust of God, He graciously did not abandon them. He loved them. He provided bread from heaven for them and water from rocks in a desert that sustained them for 40 years. Not just a trickle of water, rivers of water. He protected them from all their enemies on every side. He made the sandals on their feet last for 40 years. But He did not turn a blind eye to their faithlessness. Except for Joshua and Caleb, every other Israelite of that generation perished in that wilderness and did not enter the land. The Israelites had really, really good data about God. But even that first-hand knowledge did not bring most of them to a personal knowledge of God. 
of his heart and his ways. If it had, they would have been grateful. They would have trusted him instead of grumbling and constantly doubting his goodness and fearing everything and everyone around them and wishing they could be back in Egypt. See, knowing about God is essential, but knowing about God is insufficient. Because the the goal of knowing about God, beloved, is knowing God. Personally and transformingly. It's about a relationship. We are lovers of knowledge. Especially in in the industrialized West. But the knowledge that we love to exalt is not the knowledge that makes us godly. If you go all the way back to the very first sin of mankind recorded in Genesis 3, and by the way, it was my dear sister Sharon who raised this point with us when we were having our sermon discussion on Wednesday, the group that does that. If you go all the way back to the very first sin of mankind recorded in Genesis 3, you'll find that that sin, which revealed the truth about the hearts of mankind, proceeded from man's unwillingness to be contented with either either the provision of God or the knowledge that God had given them. Adam and Eve had a more perfect circumstance than any human being has had since the garden. They were surrounded by an abundance of evidence of God's loving kindness and goodness. They had a far more pervasive knowledge of good than any human being has had since the fall. The motivation for that first sin was not merely to finally get to eat the one thing in their whole world that God commanded them not to eat. The nature of Satan's temptation was along different lines than that. Their sin was grounded in in an obsession with finally possessing the knowledge that God had withheld from them. Satan promised them that if they ate that fruit, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. It wasn't enough for man to rest in God's knowledge of the things that he graciously determines not to reveal to us. That was also said this morning. See, we demanded to know what he knows. And I find this next part very instructive. It wasn't God's power or omnipresence or holiness or compassion or justice or love that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to demand for themselves. It was God's knowledge. We demanded to know what God knows. And what we really wanted to know more about was that thing called evil. But God had had exceedingly good and gracious reasons for withholding the knowledge of evil from his kids. If you think about it, Adam and Eve got part of half of what Satan promised. Their rebellion against God opened the floodgates for mankind to obtain firsthand knowledge of evil. And it took no time at all for mankind to achieve an astonishing mastery of that knowledge. 
In Genesis 6, a mere three chapters after the record of the fall, God looked down and, quote, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds like we kind of got the evil thing pretty well at that point. And since then, there has been no end to the depth and breadth and creativity of our mastery of evil. We know a lot about evil. So half of Satan's promise was true in large measure. But what we gave up to get that knowledge was the personal relational knowledge of God. And that means that we also gave up the knowledge of good because as Jesus said to the rich young ruler, there is no one good but God. The one and only way that human beings are ever restored to personal relational knowledge of God is when God brings us one soul at a time to faith in Jesus Christ. He has to give us new hearts so that we may again lay hold of the knowledge of his heart and his ways. Read Ezekiel 36. You'll see that in the Old Testament. 2 Peter 1 verses 2 through 4 say, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In John 17.3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. You know what? People talk about what life is. Jesus told us, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Personally. Beloved, until God makes us to personally know him, to know his ways his, and his heart, whatever knowledge we possess is insufficient for life and godliness, because this is relational, not propositional. It is insufficient to make us partakers of the divine nature. It is insufficient to grant us escape from the corruption that is in the world by lust. And let me quickly clarify something. When I say it's relational and not propositional, that doesn't mean the propositional is insignificant. In fact, you can't get to the relational without the propositional. Tim Keller said once, you can know the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing the Bible. The mind gate is how God gets to our hearts. And the word is what we need to know. The only way that we, get, that we enter into a sufficient knowledge of God is when that knowledge becomes knowledge of him instead of just about him. He is the only one who grants that knowledge. All right, so the first principle we must embrace in order to handle knowledge rightly is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The second principle is that accurate knowledge is not the same as sufficient knowledge. The third principle that we must embrace in order to, to handle knowledge rightly is in verse 3. And that verse says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. 
That may not be what we would expect to hear. You might be thinking, what does God's knowledge of me have to do with my knowledge of him? And the answer is everything. The one and only reason that any of us has entered in, into the personal knowledge of God and relationship is God is be, with God is because God already knew and loved us from eternity past. In Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So how do you become one of those people? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, that means those whom he knew beforehand, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. When did God foreknow you, if you belong to him? Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. When did you become loved by God? when he predestined you to be adopted as his sons through Christ to himself. When did, he pre when did he predestine you? When he chose you. When did he choose you? Before anything existed except God. You know God and love God because God first, made, first knew you and made you the object of his love. That is eminently clear throughout the Bible. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's real security. <laughs> 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4, 9, 9-11 says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we may live through him. In this, listen to this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then finally, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. How did you come to love God? In eternity past, God knew you before you existed. He loved you. He chose you. He predestined you at the proper time. He called you to faith in Jesus in order to make you his own. 
His intimate, personal knowledge of you happened long before your love for Him. And it is His love for you that He put on perfect display at the cross of Jesus that is the cause of your love for Him. God's knowledge of you is the cause of your knowledge of Him, and God's love for you is the cause of your love for Him. His knowledge of you determines everything about you and your life and your eternity. And that perfect eternal knowledge of you is inseparable from God's perfect eternal love for you in Jesus Christ. When, when our knowledge, our knowledge, becomes inseparable from our love, our love for God, and our love for each other, that's when we handle knowledge rightly. Dear Father, make us imitators of you so that in our knowledge we will walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to you as a fragrant aroma. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.